But dear friends, if we're pondering for a few minutes, are you living right now in the grip of fear? What is it that nags at your heart? What is it that has you wondering what might be lurking just around the corner? What is it that has you just holding your breath? We live in fear. Our nation does, even now, just last week, under the threat of global, global conflict. Lots of fears abound. A lot of political uncertainty as well. I wish I could say things were better in the church. Unfortunately, there's been a, an almost normalization of fear in our culture and even in the churches of Christ across the nation, American Christians. These days, too often known by what they're afraid of and what they feel they must protect themselves of, rather than being people of faith, stalwarts, with the courage of Christ. I think novelist Marilyn Robinson put it well when she wrote a few years ago, fear is not a Christian habit of mine. It should not characterize us, and yet too often it does. But fear, of course, isn't just a problem for the nation, a problem for the church, it's a problem for us personally. What is that nagging fear? What's that oh no that keeps creeping up in your heart? What is it that because of the power of fear that may be even controlling you, the decisions that you're making, the things that get you up in the morning, that keep you up at night, what is that fear? We are a fearful people. Dare we confess it? Sometimes we can't even detect it. Do we know this? More importantly, do you know that the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. That's not just a command. It's an invitation and a word of comfort. God knows you're afraid. God cares that you are afraid. God gives you grace in the midst of your fears. Do not fear. Moses said it. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. David sang it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, through Isaiah, counseled it. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Do not fear. I am with you. God provides comfort for Obadiah even here in this narrative in the way that he uses Elijah as a source of divine comfort. Two ways that God does this. First of all, in verse 15, Elijah reassures him that he's going to show up. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. He's not only promising his presence, don't worry, I'll be there. I'm not going to bail out on you and leave you hanging, Obadiah. He's also promising to absorb all of Ahab's threats on behalf of Obadiah and on behalf of everyone else. Don't be afraid. I will deflect all wrath and punishment onto myself in your stead. And it's in this way that we see in Elijah a little portrait, just a glimpse of Jesus, the greater Elijah, who does just this for us. 
where he gives us not only his promises, I will be with you. He gives us his presence, even his own spirit, I am with you. But he also takes all punishments and threats that constitute the worst of all our fears. Even on the cross where he says, don't be afraid, I'll take the hit for you. Don't be afraid. And he's not, of course, just bearing for us this Jesus, the unjust wrath of an evil king, but also the just wrath of the righteous king, even God himself, for the sins of our hearts. Jesus took upon himself every good and every bad reason you and I live in fear. He took all the judgment that we deserve, and he conquered everything that threatens to harm you, even death itself in his resurrection. And so I don't mean to be glib at all about your present trial, whatever it might be. But do you know, are you reassured in your heart that if you are in Christ because of his death and resurrection, that your worst case, long-term scenario is resurrection, eternal bliss, and never-ending life. That is your worst-case scenario in the gospel. Dear friends, do not fear. He gives a second assurance to Obadiah and the people of Israel, an antidote to fear, and it's a grand and even visual reminder that God is sovereign over all, in control of every detail and every threat of death, every uncertainty and every ambiguity of life. God reminds us, as he reminds all of Israel, that God is truly God which is the point of the rest of this narrative. Elijah shows up just as he says he will, and he confronts Ahab in verse 16, who of course is not at all pleased to see Elijah. See, God now here is about to bring an end to the drought and the famine. But I want you to notice this, that God is more concerned about the drought and famine inside his people's soul. I wonder if you're experiencing a spiritual famine yourself right now. And I also wonder if you even know. Because so often, we think all the problems are out there. Our circumstances, the things that we can see and feel, the things that we can measure, we think the problems are all out there when God tells us that more often than we think the real problem is right in the drought within. God is going to bring rain, literal rain, but what he really wants is for his people to return to him. Elijah later prays in verse 37, Lord, let these people know that you are turning their hearts back again. God cares, of course, about their crops and their cattle, life, and death. He cares about these things. He does in your life too. But what he most wants for them is for them to receive the reign of his grace. 
What he most wants is to address the famine within and to invite you to a feast. So Elijah tells Abab to call everyone together, get them all in here. Verse 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now listen to the question that Elijah asks the people when they all get there in verse 21. He asks this, how long will you waver between two opinions? I mean, notice, he, he doesn't even mention Famine. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, or money, or romance, or control of your circumstances, is God, follow him. Baal, of course, was the fertility god of the local Canaanite religion. He was the God of the storm. So therefore the fertility God, because he was the one in control of providing rain for their crops. As the God of the storm, he was often depicted, we still have these things, these artifacts that show him depicted holding a bolt of lightning and commanding the thunder. The God of the storm, powerful. And then there was Asherah. She was the queen mother of the gods, and she also was a goddess of fertility. You've got to notice, too, the way in which perhaps it was the fears of the people that were driving them to these gods all the more in this time of famine. So often, fear is what stokes our idolatry. It's fear that we, we think is reasonable to address. It's fear that pushes us away from God so often, even in ways that we don't see or know. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And Elijah, of course, isn't saying that it's okay simply to follow Baal. But he is saying this. Listen here. He is saying that the place in between, uh, sort of saying, I'll, I'll get a little bit of Baal and a little bit of God. A little bit of a mix, or maybe at different times. On Sunday, it's one God. On Monday through Saturday, it's another one. Or depending on the crowd that I hang with, I'll promote different priorities and values and commitments. He's saying that the place in between is a spiritually dangerous place to be because it's full of deception. And he says another thing, that deep in your heart, you're actually really following that other God, the God of success the God of comfort, the God of romance, the God of happiness. Again, what has been your functional, practical God lately? Because do you know that when Elijah asked this question, how long will you waver, that word waver actually literally is limp. How long will you limp between two opinions? And limping is a word that's used later in the passage to describe the way in which the prophets of Baal danced as part of their worship. Something of a herky-jerky motion. I was going to say I'm not going to try. I'm showing you already how to do No, something. Some kind of limping-like dance. And he's saying, look, you think you're in between. Ultimately, you're worshiping that other God. 
You, you think you're doing a mix, but actually you've given yourself wholeheartedly to this other God. You're really choosing Baal. Jesus said it too, didn't he? No one can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, but don't pretend. Don't deceive yourself. James says it differently. He uses the language of being double-minded. you got two parts of you, two almost use the way in which you've devoted yourself on the surface to God, but more deeply to other gods. Dear friends, are you today of a double mind? Uh, straddling the fence, professing faith in Christ, but maybe practically and functionally bowing to other gods. And I want you to understand that this is not just a stern warning. It's an invitation to joy, to the freedom of Christ. It's an invitation to life. So, so choose today. Choose life. Choose grace and love. And so, of course, Elijah invites Ahab's prophets to a contest. And the nature of the contest here is to prove which God is true. Explains the rules of this contest. You see it in verse 23. Get two bulls, one for me and one for them. Put them on the wood on these altars. Baal's prophets get to go first. Elijah will go second. Then call on the name of each of your respective gods. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on your God. And the God who answers by fire ignites a fire on this altar. He is God. He's the true God. And as we watch the way in which these con this contest unfolds, we actually get a, a portrait, a picture, into the nature of the devotion of our hearts. In other words, in, in, in watching the prophets of Baal, what we see is we learn something about the nature of false gods and false worship. You notice in the last part of verse 26, we're told that they danced around the altar that they had made. They danced. In other words, they were trying to make a, a visible display of their devotion before their God in order to grab his attention. You see, this is the way that most religions work, or most even philosophies of life, the ways in which we feel like we're on the hook to perform well in order to get the blessing. We need to earn our way into God's favor. We need to get his benefaction, his care. It is up to us, and so we must dance. Oh, friends, some of you are dancing. Dancing hard, dancing long, dancing loud. Do you see it? In verse 26, they called on the name of, the, of Baal from morning until noon. As though the length of their devotion and display will catch his attention. We're told that they increased their volume too. Baal, answer us. They shouted. So Elijah taunts them, verse 27. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. And I have to point this out. That word busy actually isn't really what the text says in the ancient Hebrew. That's a euphemism. What he really says is, uh, maybe your God is relieving himself. And he might be a little bit occupied right now. This is real trash talk, right? 
prophet style that's going on. Where is your God? He says, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shout louder and slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. You say, what is up with this bloodiness? Well, of course, as it says, it was the custom of the prophets of Baal to cut themselves, to mutilate themselves in order to get their God's attention. And you say, that is disgusting. That's completely weird. And yet, dear friends, what are ways in which we think our pain, maybe, is what gets God's attention? The ways in which we feel like we need to beat ourselves up, whether with religious acts of austerity and holiness, or beat ourselves up with activism, or beat ourselves up with faithfulness to our families, or beat ourselves up with our jobs and our careers. We are a self-mutilating people seeking the blessing of God. A bloodless sacrifice that we offer up to our false gods every single day. And they, these gods do demand it, don't they? They say, cut yourself for me, bleed for me, sacrifice yourself for me, slash yourself for me. And yet even here, there was no response we're told. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then it was Elijah's turn. Elijah's turn. The first thing Elijah does in verse 30 is he calls the people to himself. This is a wayward people, of course. We heard him say, choose, because you haven't chosen. They are under God's rebuke. It's not just Ahab. The people have followed their unfaithful king. But you can almost hear the grace of Elijah, even tenderness, when he says, come here to me. No, 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 hey, I've got this, you stand off, you're the ones that caused all of this, no, come here to me. Here's the prophet being the embodiment of the heart of God, his love for sinners, his mercy towards idolaters, his identification with his wayward people, come here to me. And he even reminds them and names them as his people, as he names the name Israel, as coming from their patriarch Jacob. And as he mounts up the, the twelve tribes of Israel together, he says, no, 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 you, you, are, my, you are still my family. And I'm going to keep my promises to you, my named people. Do you see the grace of God? Elijah rebuilds the altar with a scattered pile of rocks that used to be worshipped, used for the worship of Israel's God, but apparently had since been unused and left apart, falling apart, and it's almost this picture of bringing them back to their old love, their first love, and maybe this is going to be your story for some of you, returning to the God of your former devotion. Notice, first of all, that Elijah purposely Stack the deck in favor of the prophets of Baal. Everything that he does is almost set up to make sure that he will lose. So first of all, he chose a location, Mount Carmel, that was already a place of worship for Baal primarily. So the prophets of Baal had home field advantage. Also, he sets up, of all tests, his test of fire to come out of the sky... He goes to Baal's supposed strength. This is his specialty. 
his expertise. Remember, Baal was the god of the storm. Right? Elijah didn't say, hey, let's see who can make the best meal. Or, hey, let's see who can, uh, you know, make this or that happen. He says, no, let's, let's make fire happen with lightning. Hey, you, you, you've got a lightning bolt in your hand. Why don't you go ahead and show us how to do it? He was playing to Baal's supposed strength. He's far outnumbered as well. There are far more prophets of Baal and Asherah than there are Elijah, one man. They have a bigger team, 850 of them. Elijah intentionally makes his prospect of winning weak and unlikely. And do you know why? Because God's power is shown most in our weakness. It's always been the case. God's power is shown most clearly in our weakness. So friends, if you want to see God show up, don't be afraid to be weak. Ian DeGree, the wonderful commentator and author, theologian, wrote this, when circumstances seem overwhelming and the difficulties seem beyond our ability to overcome or even cope with, God then shows us his glory and power. When the deck looks stacked against you, do you know that that's when God loves showing up on us? That was the case on Mount Carmel. That was also the case on Mount Calvary. When he showed his greatest victory in the moments of what appeared to be his greatest defeat. Jesus, the Son of God, crucified in such ugly fashion. Defeated in the hands of men, somehow, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over evil, God winning, even when it most looked like he was losing. Do you know that this is where God loves showing up the most? In your weakness. And here's another demonstration of Elijah's weakness. Of all things that he could do to call down fire from heaven, he kneels down and Praise? Quietly praise. Verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I and your servant have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh, see the contrast between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of the Lord. Here's Elijah kneeling in prayer in quietness, in brevity, not a whole lot of words, not long, not loud, but humble. No performance, no dancing trying to impress this God. No slashing. No, this is God coming because he's willing and eager to come near to you in your fearfulness and in your weakness. God coming to save you because he loves you. God willing and ready to forgive you and to redeem and restore you to himself no matter how long you have strayed. No matter how far you have wandered. This is grace. God comes near you because he loves you. 
Not because he's paid off or manipulated by you. And then suddenly, fire comes out. Verse 30. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. This was no ordinary fire. This was a fire that singed absolutely everything. There was nothing left. Nothing left. It was supernatural fire, like someone opened up an exhaust duct from heaven itself. This was fire from heaven. In fact, it was fire from heaven because it was the very personal presence of God who all throughout the Old Testament is depicted as a consuming fire. And of course, the great moment of love and grace in that surprising moment, if you notice it, is that the fire did not fall on God's wayward people. The consuming fire did not consume them. It consumed the sacrifice. It fell upon the bull. Because, of course, the fire did fall. Years later, upon that other mountain, not Mount Carmel, but Mount Calvary, where Jesus, when he hung upon the cross, said, I thirst. And though surely his mouth was parched, it seems clear that he was talking about the state of his soul, which was burning as he suffered the wrath and fire of God. Fire was burning in his soul. And he did this for you and me because he loves us, because he wanted to pave a way that we might know God and worship him as the true God and have life eternal. You see, every other God, whether constructed in our own minds or belonging to formal religions of this world, every other false God will say, dance on the mountain and bleed for me. There's only one God in the God of the Bible who says, I will bleed for you. This is his gift. This is the God who says, if the Lord is God, follow me, choose me. Choose my love, choose my grace, choose life. Oh, friends, will you today choose life? And when all the people saw this, we're told in verse 39, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, He is God. There's a well-known poem that was written years and years ago in the 16th century by a Spanish mystic and Catholic theologian by the name of Teresa of Avila. Its words seem to pull together a number of different themes that we've encountered in this passage, and I'm going to close by sharing them with you. This is what she wrote. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. 
Do you know what happens after all the famine, after all the fear and terror, after all the idolatry, after the contest here on Mount Carmel, and after all the people's confession that the Lord is God, do you know after it all what happened? It began to rain. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Let's pray. We want to know you as the all-sufficient one. That your love would be enough for us today. That your perfect love might cast out all fear. That you might loosen our grip upon other things. That we might have a full, wholehearted grip on you and your love. And more than that, that we would be aware that your grip is strong upon us because of your covenant love. You never change, God. You're the same God way back then as you are today. We trust in you. We love you. And so we sing hallelujah. Praise to the Lord God Almighty for loving us like this, for being all things for us. Help us to see now as you are and set us free from all our fears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.
Knowing that we're loved by Christ. 
Christ. So come, do that work. You promised you would, Jesus. Come and do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, when he was with his disciples after giving thanks, as we just did in his name, he broke bread with them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. Make of it, all of you. I want to invite you to come forward at your own time so you can just jump on in line. Um, a little bit of organized chaos. Go ahead and do so. Or you can sit and ponder and pray. Maybe you just need to exhale a few times. Maybe that's what you most need right now. But come forward. If you do come, come in faith. Come trusting that God will meet you. Come believing that Jesus died for you and rose again. Which of course means that a prerequisite for taking this table is that you do believe that he did die for you. Rose again. This is a table of communion for those who have said, I need Jesus' communion with me or my soul will have a drought, famine, and it will die. So if that's your confession, come. If that's not your confession, we'd like to ask, maybe it's not the right time for you to come. We don't want you to say one thing and believe another thing or do one thing and to hold different beliefs and convictions in your heart. We're trying to protect you from your spiritual integrity, in fact. But you can use this time really well. Maybe ponder, think about something that you've heard. Write down a note to yourself. You can pray, talk to God, use some of the reflection questions you'll find in the bulletin, and this prayer belief that you'll find on the screen is also in the bulletin, which can help you pray, maybe even today, that first step prayer of embracing Jesus for life and for salvation. We consider that today. If you are someone that needs prayer, we also have members of our prayer team in the back, Margarita and Kristen, who would love to pray for you. You just want to go over there. You don't even have to say a word. All you have to say is, I just need prayer. Or you can explain it if you'd like to. They would love to pray for you. We all are needy in here. Some of us are just brave enough to ask someone to pray. So let's do that and make ourselves uh, available to, to these dear sisters. Uh, we would love to serve you. Uh, if you're coming for communion, come forward. Two tables in the back, one in the front. Come and taste and see the Lord.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is coming. He who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus be upon you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Great being with you, everyone. Take care. Take care, everyone. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Go talk to mommy. I don't know that we have time.